disease uh, lecture, actually mostly through it. Um, we had uh, talked about uh, virulence factors, uh, toxins, endotoxins, and exotoxins. Uh, we have um, antiphagocytic factors. <clears throat> uh, this is another virulence factor. Anything that allows the organism to, to stay and to continue growing uh, and prevents you from getting rid of it in, uh, or causes more damage is considered a virulence factor. So if they have an antiphagocytic property, then this is going to obviously lengthen the time of the infection. Uh, and so one of those is the capsule. We talked about that way back when we did the begin, you know, at the beginning when we talked about uh, bacterial cells, that the presence of a capsule would uh, uh, make it difficult for white blood cells to engulf them, uh, makes it more difficult for the immune system to even recognize that they're, they're foreign. They also, some of them also uh, uh, produce some uh, chemicals that actually destroy white blood cells. And so these, uh, these would be considered virulence factors. Okay, so, so we have the toxins, we have this, uh, we had some uh, enzymes that they produced, extracellular enzymes, okay. Um, all of these will contribute to the virulence of the organism. So here, uh, the, the capsule blocks it from being uh, actually completely surrounded. And then over here, uh, it's been engulfed, but then the organism can't kill it because it produces a chemical that prevents uh, the white blood cell from actually killing the organism. So those, again, virulence factors relate, related to phagocytosis. Now, any infectious disease process goes through a series of stages. There are, there are five basic uh, stages that it goes through. Um, and so you start off with an incubation period. Um, at this point, of course, there is no, no sign of the disease at all. There are no symptoms. Um, you have no idea that you have been infected or contaminated, however you want to look at that. Uh, and then it goes into what's called the prodromal phase um, and this is when you first get some symptoms, and you've know, you probably noticed how a lot of the time when you when you start a lot many of these disorders, they start off with very similar symptoms. It's kind of a little bit of a low-grade fever and kind of achy, and maybe a headache, and you just don't feel very good. Uh, that's the prodromal. I mean, the symptoms are not very defined, but yet you know that things are not quite right. Then you go into the illness itself. And this is where you see the, uh, the more severe symptoms, the ones that are characteristic of that particular illness. Because each of them, many of them have their own unique uh, uh, symptoms that they will cause. And that would show up during this uh, third uh, stage of the infection. Uh, and then uh, your immune system finally begins to get the upper hand with it. And you get the decline phase. And during this time, then, this, the symptoms, the signs gradually begin to decline. You know you start to feel better. You're not well yet, but you know that, you know, okay, when I wake up tomorrow, I'm going to feel a lot better because you can feel it going away. And then you have a convalescence period at the end. That's your last phase. Uh, this is a, a time period that you regain your strength, uh, depending on the disorder. If it's just a cold, there's not much of a convalescent period. But for some others, like the flu, there may be several days before you really feel completely back to normal. And that's a convalescent. You don't have any signs anymore of the disease, but you don't really, you're tired more easily. You know, you just, just don't feel quite right yet. 
And so most infectious diseases will go through this. Now there's a timeline on the bottom, and of course that timeline is going to vary depending on the type of infection. Uh, you know, the, the, the length of each of these stages will vary. But they, most all the diseases uh, that we'll talk about eventually will go through this sequence of, uh, of, of phases. And then the last thing to be a successful pathogen, you remember at the beginning we had uh, portal of entry. Okay, if we go back, gone through a lot of different things here. Uh, we had portal of entry, that's the first uh, thing, getting entry into the body through one of the various portals. You know, it could be skin, it could be usually it's skin and mucous membranes. It could be the placenta, it could be uh, a, a uh, that you have some kind of a, a, a lesion on the skin, okay, those kinds of things. Uh, then it has to adhere so it doesn't get washed out with the mucus or with the intestinal uh, products, with the feces. Uh, so it has to adhere. Uh, and at this point then, the uh, infection, once it has adhered, it has to survive your host defenses long enough to then begin to, to grow. And this is the beginning of the actual infection. Uh, the disease then will come along at some point when there's sufficient quantity of the organism that it actually begins to, in some way, interfere with normal body functions, and then you have the disease. Okay. Uh, we talked about symptoms and signs and syndromes, the differences between them. We looked at the causation of disease. So what, what caused this? Uh, basically, we looked at Cook's postulates. It's four postulates that uh, in, allow you to particularly pin a particular disease to a particular microorganism, okay? which is obviously important for treatment. Uh, so we looked at that. Looked at virulence factors. Those are part of the disease process. Uh, and then we looked at the stages of that infectious disease. Okay, so for the disease to be uh, completely uh, effective, I mean successful, it has to get out of you. Okay, so it got in you so that it can reproduce. I mean, it, diseases do not, um, they're not evil, okay? I mean, they're not, their function in life is not to kill you or make you feel bad. Their function is to get in you to reproduce and move on. Okay, eat, survive, reproduce. It's kind of what most organisms do. Okay. Um, and to do that, they need to then get out. So they need to leave through a portal of exit. Um, and there's a number of ways that that can occur. Um, there's just kind of a list of them here. Um, and we'll look at a little bit more of, look at a little more of that later. But uh, some through uh, tears, saliva, uh, often through, uh, when you cough or sneeze, uh, bits of, of uh, small droplets that come out, uh, sometimes through the ears. Uh, in some cases, broken skin, they can get out that way. Uh, certainly through the feces, many of the organisms we'll look at are, are uh, fecal-oral route of, uh, of uh, infection. Uh, sometimes in the semen, occasionally in the urine, and in vaginal secretions, and in some cases, actually through the milk and the mammary glands. All of those are potential portals of exit. 
Now, no one organism uses all of those. It's going to depend on the organism, which one of those is appropriate for that organism. But if they don't get moved on to another host, then really the infection has not been successful at all. So if you get, uh, you get a cold at, at home and you're the only one in the house that gets it, uh, then that particular organism has not been very successful. It has not moved on to other hosts. Now, that moving on to another host is what we refer to as transmission uh, with infectious diseases. And there are three basic types of transmission. First, of course, is contact. Direct contact or indirect contact. Um, direct contact is exactly what it sounds like. You, you touch the other individual. We looked at, at Ebola. That's a common way that Ebola is transferred by direct contact. Uh, it can also have an indirect, which is when the organism spreads from you onto inanimate objects and then somebody touches those inanimate objects and picks them up. Uh, these are referred to as fomites. That's what the inanimate objects are called. And this is common with things like the flu or colds or uh, conjunctivitis is another that's a very commonly spread by this indirect uh, mechanism. And then we have droplets. Uh, these usually are a result of mostly of coughing and sneezing. Uh, there are small droplets and there will be microbes in those droplets and that's another method of transmission. So all of these are considered contact transmission. Okay, there's what happens when you cough. You really, this is backlit so that you can see. Uh, but, you know, the, when you cough fairly hard, there is this spray. You don't see it in the normal environment, but it goes out, and if you have one that is spread by droplets, all of these little droplets in this image would contain microbes that could potentially spread. Okay, it also be spread by what we call vehicles. Uh, one is airborne. Uh, some microbes are airborne. Uh, they simply travel through the air. Uh, you can have water. Many organisms are especially those that are uh, exit through the intestinal tract, will get into uh, water if water's not cleaned, if it's not, not san you know, sanitary uh, conditions, uh, then it, uh, somebody eats or drinks something that has that contaminated water uh, on it, and then obviously they get the disease. Okay? So this is a, these are vehicles then. Uh, it's being transmitted by something, either airborne or waterborne, um, you can also have food, it can be transmitted through food. If you get food poisoning, uh, this is transmitted through food. Listeria is transmitted through food. Uh, uh, actually, many things can be transmitted through food, uh, depending on how they're touched. Body fluids, uh, Ebola is a really good example of that, okay? transmitted by body fluids. Uh, poorly refrigerated foods, this is an example. This is the way food beats. Uh, this is way they're bought in many third world areas. There's this carcasses and they pack a, a portion of that off when you, when you purchase it and you take it home with you. That's, there is no refrigeration, there is no supermarket, there is no, no sanitation. Okay? That's how many people live. Okay, you can also have biological vectors. Um, usually, more often than not, these are insects. 
malaria is transmitted by mosquitoes and, and dengue fever by mosquitoes and uh, Zika virus by mosquitoes and mosquitoes are really nasty about transferring things. Uh, CT flies transmit African sleeping sickness. Uh, there's a, quite a few of these uh, diseases. Uh, ticks transmit uh, you know, Lyme disease and ehrlichiosis and Rocky Mountain spotted fever and fleas transmit plague. And so you know, th these are arthropods are usually insects, but they have to be insects uh, in every case. But generally that's what it is. And, and they are the carrier from, from uh, the person who has the disease to somebody who does not. And so they serve as the, as the vector. Usually we refer to these then as zoonoses because they're transmitted by a, an animal of some kind. And then uh, there can just be simply mechanical vectors. Uh, you, you transmit uh, simply by touch of something. Uh, you know, it's passive. There's no active transmission involved. It's probably the far less, well, uh, I guess it is fairly common. Um, I don't know if you, uh, in, in your elementary school, if somebody in class came down with conjunctivitis, pink eye, uh, they would usually be not allowed back in school until it's gone. And at least when I was in school, you know, the teacher would come in with, a, with alcohol and wipes, and they'd wipe down the desk, and they'd wipe down everything that they knew the individual had touched. And that's to remove those passive mechanical vectors. Um, we didn't know what they were doing because nobody ever explained it to us. We just figured, we were, you know, must be some horrible disease and we're all going to die. <laughs> Whatever was going on, but it turns out it was just pink eye, which is, can be dangerous uh, if not treated, but generally in our culture it's not a major issue. It's pretty irritating. Okay, and so here's a list of some of the arthropods. Uh, mosquitoes, ticks, fleas, lice, uh, flies. There are some other blood-sucking bugs. Uh, there are a few that mites or chiggers. Uh, chiggers are common around here. They do not transmit uh, typhus around here that I'm aware of, but they do in some areas. Uh, if you've ever had chiggers, you won't ever forget them. They, uh, are, you know, they're just really irritating. For several days, wherever they uh, were. Usually they're around your ankles, down on your legs, around your ankles, and it just itches and itches. Uh, they're not a lot you can do for them. Okay, um, a few more house flies carry a lot of foodborne infections because the way, uh, because uh, they land on things and they taste their food with their feet. That's what their, their taste sensors are on their feet. So by walking on their food, that's how they decide whether it's something they want. And then if it's something they want, they essentially spit on it, their saliva, put on it to start to liquefy it and then they sop it up. They have a sponge-like uh, proboscis that they, that they sponge it back up. Well, obviously, when they land on food, you don't know what they've been walking on before they got there. And they can easily transmit, okay? Uh, that way. Um, cockroaches, I don't usually, you don't usually hear much about cockroaches, but it is not impossible. Again, they, they get walk on your food, and again, you don't know where all they have been prior to that time. Cockroaches are everywhere. Uh, yeah, they were going to get rid of them, probably. Completely. They're just way too well adapted to living with us. Uh, 
one of those species that everybody has always said that when humans are gone, the cockroaches will still be here because they, they've been around a long, long time. Very, very effective little critters. And they're not all nasty ones like we, uh, the ones we that get in your food now. There's some really interesting ones, the, the, uh, was it the uh, hissing cockroaches. Some people have those as pets. They actually make a hissing sound. They're pretty big. They're about this big. Um, there, there's a lot of different species of cockroaches. They're not all the ones that we would like to see. Okay, um, now we can classify these infectious diseases lots of different ways. We can do it by the body system, which is kind of how we're going to go over diseases when we go get into that part. Um, you can classify them by the taxonomic category that the cause, the causal organism is in. Okay, that's another way. That's what your textbook does. We're not going to use that. Uh, we're going to do it by, by organ system, by body system. Uh, they're classified by how long they, they last, uh, how they're spread. Um, some of them are spread to large numbers of people, cause epidemics or pandemics. And then those are then categorized a little bit differently because they have affect such large numbers of individuals. Um, and then we uh, have a few terms here. Um, and, and some of these you will be already uh, familiar with. Acute diseases usually have rapid onset, um, and they usually are over fairly quickly. Okay, food poisoning is an acute disease. It comes on with almost no warning, and usually within 24 hours it's gone. Uh, it's what many people refer to as the 24-hour flu, but it's not there is no flu that lasts for only 24 hours. Uh, you can have chronic diseases uh, that last for weeks, months, years, lifetime, depending on what it is. Uh, generally tend to not have very, uh, not tend not to be particularly uh, uh, virulent, because if they're really virulent, they don't last a long time. Subacute, uh, it's somewhere in between those. Asymptomatic diseases, there are no symptoms. You have the organism, but there are no symptoms. Uh, latent diseases don't appear until a long time after you have been contacted. Okay, so they uh, it may be weeks, months before you know before it actually appears. Uh, communicable can be transmitted, contagious, it's easily spread. Um, and then there's Local, that means it's just a small area. Local would be like you get a scratch and it gets infected on, on your, your arm. That's a local infection. Uh, systemic is when it spreads into the, usually into the circulatory system, and it spreads throughout the body. Uh, and then primary and secondary. Uh, primary is the, the first infection. And then secondary infections are those that come later other organisms that are opportunistic because you you have one infection, your immune system is run down, and then they have the opportunity to become uh, infectious as they normally would be. So just a few terms that apply to uh, infectious diseases. Now, the field of um, epidemiology really has to do then with studying 
the all of these things about how diseases are transmitted, where they are, what are the patterns of transmission. Um, this is what CDC does, among other things, and they're not the only one, the World Health Organization uh, is tracking these. And so they look at the incidence of the disease. In other words, how many new cases are there during a given time period? Uh, so that, that's one thing you look at. Do we have just a few? Do we have a lot of them? Um, you know, that's, so that's incidence. Uh, so they look at the total number of cases in a given area. So in other words, how prevalent is it in that area, Do, you know, in that particular area? Uh, they can also be looked at from a geographic viewpoint. Uh, this is uh, a graph that shows the incidence and prevalence of, of, of AIDS. Uh, incidence is in the orange line, prevalence is the blue line, okay? And so the number of new cases initially increased, and now, as you notice, it's kind of leveled off, uh, the number of new cases that are occurring. But yet, uh, the, the total number of cases, since you can have AIDS for fairly long, well, these HIV infections, fairly long time, uh, the number of people increases okay, rapidly. Uh, epidemiologists look at uh, you know, uh, an outbreak by, by, in some cases, by state. So here, this, I, I don't know what this particular one is. It could be the flu. Uh, they're looking at, they, they plot where in the country this particular disease is appearing. Look for patterns in that. Here they look for patterns in age groups. Some diseases are much more common in elderly, relatively uncommon in, in, in young people. Over here, they're tracking them by time of year. Okay, flu is particularly common from December through about now. And then it pretty much tails off in the summer. The flu is not very common during the summer. So we know there's a particular time period that we, we, can, we would uh, track that. Um, an endemic disease is one that's kind of found all over. Uh, this is its normal range. It's found everywhere within that range. Something that's sporadic just sort of shows up here, and then it shows up there, but there's no real pattern to where it shows up. Uh, this would be an epidemic, lots of cases in one area. And then when it starts spreading to other areas, then we call it a pandemic. So the flu is usually a pandemic type of, of uh, infection because it spreads through North America, Europe, South America, spreads through them from all of the different areas. Uh, how serious it is, is of course, is another issue entirely. And I they don't need, obviously, nothing to memorize, but this is uh, from the data that the CDC collects, and this is, uh, for certain weeks during uh, from October of 2012 to and October 2011, showing you the prevalence of giardia and gonorrhea uh, during in various parts of the country. Okay, and so they again, all of this data is what we call epidemiology. And so some physicians uh, they go through med school, get their MD, and they may specialize in epidemiology. They go to work for places like the CDC or the Health organization, they track the worldwide distributions of diseases, uh, and, and that's in these days that's in a, in a very important function. Uh, now, this is not always easy. Number one, many diseases are not required to be reported to anybody. Now, this is a list of what in the United States 
are required to be uh, reported to state health departments who then are supposed to send that on to the CDC. Uh, this is certainly not every disease in the world. Uh, there are many others that, that, that are not on here, but this is what is required to report. Now, if you go to other countries, what's required to report may be very different. Uh, in uh, Europe, uh, probably China is pretty good about it, uh, Australia, uh, Canada, those places, you get very similar lists of diseases. You get into the third world countries. They may not even have a uh, any administrative method for even diagnosing and reporting them. You may never know exactly what they have, okay, what's going on in those areas. This is something that the CDC does here for us. Um, so you can describe it. So you basically, you, uh, you record the location and time of each case. Collect information on the patient, where was the patient, what's the patient's age, what other diseases the patient have. And what you're really looking for in, a, in an epidemic is who's number one? Who's the first person that came down with the disease? This is referred to as the index case. If it's an infectious disease, the index case is the person that brought it into an area and then it spread from that person to other individuals. Okay. That's part of what, again, what epidemiologists do. This is uh, the very first time that we know that epidemiological principles were applied, and this was in London in the uh, 1850s. Cholera is still something that is a dangerous disease, but in most countries with any kind of sanitation, cholera is quite rare. Cholera is spread uh, through drinking water, uh, through contaminated drinking water, and so this was uh, in, in 1854, um, what they were doing, they had an outbreak in London, and uh, there was a particular, uh, I don't see his name on here, Dr. Snow, I believe it was, who took a map and plotted the location of the individuals that came down with cholera, or, or died from cholera. And these little red circles, uh, the way people got water back then, they didn't have running water in the house, they went to a, a pump. They pumped the water out into buckets and they carried it home. And it was very clear from this that this was probably this pump was probably the source of the cholera, so the contaminated water. And they closed down this pump, said so, you know, people could not use it, and the uh, epidemic fairly quickly subsided. This is the one of the first times, at least it's documented, that we know this type of epidemiological approach was, was done. And, uh, and, and that's really kind of the beginnings of that approach ever since. Uh, if you do analytic, you can look at causes, methods of transmission, how it's prevented. Most of the time, this is done after the epidemic, after the outbreak has started, because until one has started, you don't know to even look. It's like Ebola last summer. Until the epidemic began, nobody knew to go there and look to it this kind of data. And then we have hospital <coughs> epidemiology, which those of you who go into nursing or actually dental hygiene will end up having some uh, experience with. Uh, these are infections acquired in the hospital, which are really very common these days. Uh, so, uh, Exogenous means that the pathogen was simply in that environment. 
might have been on a table, it may have been in, in, in a sink in a restroom, it might wherever it was. Uh, where endogenous uh, is normal microbiota cause the infection due to things that happen in the healthcare setting. Maybe it was surgery, maybe it was the use of lots of antibiotics, whatever caused normal organisms to become uh, pathogenic. Uh, if the medical procedure itself causes it, like people who do uh, a hip replacement and then they get an infection in the new socket, uh, these are called iatrogenic. This is del you know, definitely caused by the medical procedure. Okay. And then super infections, as we talked about before, are where antimicrobial drugs reduce normal uh, organisms to the point that relatively uh, common and, and unpathogenic organisms become pathogenic. So, uh, nosocomial simply means hospital acquired. And, and unfortunately today, uh, this is more common than we would like it to be. And frequently these infections are antibiotic resistant because a lot of people in the hospital are getting antibiotics and so the proportion of these organisms that are going to be resistant is going to be higher than out in the general population. So, uh, you know, hospitals are dangerous places. A lot of sick people there. Yeah, I mean, it's the way it is. So, you have a number of things that can uh, interplay for this. First of all, you have to have the presence of the microorganism. If it's not present, then obviously there's no infection. You can have transmission between staff and patients, or between patients, or you can have an immunocompromised patient. All of these intersect to cause the nosocomial infections. Okay. Now, we had the video on the nightmare bacteria, hunting the nightmare bacteria, and you saw the, the extent to which the Hospital of Maryland went to try to stop. It was obviously a hospital-acquired infection for most of the people who died there. Uh, and uh, they got very aggressive. And I don't think today they're entirely sure that they've eliminated that pathogen from the hospital entirely. Okay. Uh, it's very, di very difficult to get rid of. You can go into an operating room after everything has been scrubbed down, and you can take samples and you will find bacteria. I mean, they're everywhere. Remember, they're ubiquitous. You cannot sterilize an entire operating suite is not feasible to do. Just do the best we can. Unfortunately, most people do not get infections uh, while they're in the hospital. Lots of people, you know, are very, very, very successful. They get knee replacements, they have their appendix removed, they have whatever needs to be done, and they do not acquire an infection while they're in the hospital. But when people do, not only is it going to be difficult to get rid of, but they have a very negative opinion of what went on because they went to the hospital to get well and in fact they got sicker. And people do not take that well. Okay. Now part of that is because they just simply do not understand that when you go to the hospital you actually increase your odds of coming in contact with one of these. Okay, so that is the end of the material that will be on the exam on Monday. Okay. Now, I'm going to start on immunity tonight just because I don't want to lose the, the half hour of time. 
but we'll be uh, looking then at the uh, control of microbial growth. Okay, well, actually, we looked at microbial growth, we looked at all of the things that microbes require, we looked at the physical things that, you know, like oxygen and, and all that that they need. We looked at the growth curve, uh, you know, so we went through all of that material. We went through how you can count them, how you can know how many you have, uh, you know, went, went through all of that material in, in, in Lecture 5 That's all about growth in microorganisms. Okay, then in B, we're looking at how do we control that, particularly pathogens. I mean, controlling the rest of them is, is a, well, first of all, impossible and probably a waste of time. But pathogens, we would really like to control. And so we went through physical methods by which we can control their growth, we went through chemical methods, okay, and then we looked at um, microbial, antimicrobial methods, okay, all through three different basic attempts to control microbial growth, okay. And then in this one, we looked at infectious diseases. So we looked at how they're transmitted, what's the series of events the successful pathogen does. We looked at the uh, course of a disease in an individual, we looked at epidemiology. Okay. Those are the materials that will be covered on the, on the exam. Okay, when we uh, get through immunity, we have three chapters on, on immunity. Um, and essentially three lectures. Okay. Um, first one tonight, we start on innate immunity and just some general information first and then innate immunity. And, and we will uh, we'll go through that. Then the next uh, section that we'll look at will be on um, the more active type of immunity, the adaptive immune response, where your uh, innate response is an inborn response and it's the same no matter what the organism standard response. Most of the time successful, but not always. If not successful, then we have an adaptive process that actually adapts to the particular organism that has infected it. Okay? And that is, uh, and we'll look through how that works. And then the last thing we'll look at is uh, disease, uh, I won't call them diseases, but uh, problems with immune system functioning. Everything from uh, acquired immune deficiencies to uh, allergies and you know, all of those types of things. Okay? So those are the, the three things that we're going to be looking at in this section. When we finish that, we, were, we will have a uh, take-home exam over that material. I'll, uh, whenever we're, we're done, I'll post it on Blackboard, uh, and you'll have one basically a week to work on it. And in the meantime, we'll continue on with uh, the organ system. We only have five weeks left. Okay, so time is complete. So, innate immunity. Well, a lot of people will divide immunity into uh, basically, well, there's two ways of putting it. I think this text talks about a first line and a second line of defense. Other texts will talk about a first, second, and third line of defense. But the first and second lines of defense are part of innate immunity. They're two different parts of innate immunity. So what we're looking at here, that 
two uh, basic approaches. One, how do we stop them from getting in? Okay, if we stop the microbes from ever getting in, then we don't need to worry about it. We don't need any other response. Okay, that's your first level of immune response. Just put up a wall and keep them out. How many times have countries tried that? It never works 100%. And it doesn't work any better with the immune system. It keeps a lot of things out, but it's never going to keep everything out. Okay? Then, once it penetrates that, then we have a standard, inherited, always the same response. And we'll look uh, at a, a chemical response, a cellular response. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that response functions. That's kind of your second line of Okay. If that is not successful, then we go on to the next lecture, which is on the adaptive portion. All right, so we start off with, when we look at this, this barrier approach, we're looking really at the skin mucous membranes, okay? Skin and the mucous membranes. So we all know what the skin looks like, okay? You remember from anatomy that you've got an epidermis that's mostly on the outside dead. It keeps flaking off, okay? And then you have, and they're really pretty tightly Stuck together. Uh, there are dendritic cells that are along the bottom edge of that that, that help uh, phagocytize pathogens. And then you have the dermis underneath, which has a lot of collagen in it, which provides you with some strength that keeps the skin from easily tearing. Okay? And so the unbroken skin is an, a very effective barrier to most microbes. Very few, there are a few, but very few microbes can just go right through the skin. Okay, so it's an extremely effective method, and we'll look at some of the reasons why it's effective here in a moment. Okay, so here's what the surface of your skin looks like. This is a, a um, scanning electron micrograph, and you can see they're flat cells. Okay, at this point they're all dead. Any microbes that get on these, uh, pretty soon these are just going to flake off, and any microbes on them are going to go flying off with them. And this is one way that we help protect ourselves this uh, flaky type of skin. We also have chemicals secreted in the skin that are defensive, okay? First of all, we have sweat. We all sweat, well, not a lot so much in the winter, but you actually you sweat a little bit all the time. Uh, you just don't notice it when it's not very warm, but it's still happening. And when you do that, obviously there's water involved. We know that that's part of what's being secreted. But you also uh, are going to have salts. So the surface of your skin is slightly salty. If you've ever, I, I can't remember when I, when you, well, we don't have a dog now, but when I, when I had my last dog, if I was out in the yard cutting the grass in the summer and I was sweating and I'd come in, she'd be licking my legs. I'm wearing a pair of shorts, she'd lick my legs. Why? Because they're salty. The, the sweat has left salt and the animals seek, seek out salt, okay? Uh, they don't usually get enough. They will seek out that salt. And, and salt, as we already know, is one method of controlling microbial growth. Okay? It doesn't make it a very hospitable environment. There are some antimicrobial uh, peptides secreted in the sweat and another uh, molecule called lysozyme. Lysozyme is an enzyme. It's found in, in sweat. It's also found in tears. And it and it helps to break down the cross-connections in peptide glycogen. And so obviously if you do that, that weakens the cell wall and this can cause the death of, of the bacteria. Okay, 
Okay. So all of this is provided by, by sweat, by perspiration. Okay. Skin is not then, is then as a result, is a little bit salty. It has these antimicrobials on it. And unless you're actively sweating it, uh, it, it a lot, it's relatively dry most of the time. Okay, not things that microbes are looking for, for their ideal growth environment. They want it to be damp, they don't want a lot of salt, they don't want antimicrobial materials. Okay, this helps the skin be an effective barrier to, to microbes. We also secrete sebum, okay, that comes from the sebaceous glands, so, you know, through the hair follicles, part of what contributes to acne if you had issues with that. Um, but it, it's, it's a lipid material, and so what it does is it keeps the skin, uh, well, it says here pliable, but it, it keeps it able to, to bend without breaking, without tearing, okay? Um, you don't get, for instance, if you are washing your hands a lot and it's really dry, you don't get much of that on, your, on the tips of your fingers. Sometimes you'll get little cracks in the skin along, I get them along my thumb. Um, and that's because there's nothing there to keep the skin soft, softer. It also is acidic. Now, it's not like it's a pH of one and a half or anything, but it is acidic. And again, most microbes that are pathogens are adapted to your normal internal conditions, which is a pH of about 7.35 to 7.45. Start getting into the, a little into the acidic realm, and they're not very happy with that. So these all contribute then to the skin's ability to act as a barrier and not let things penetrate and get inside. All right, now, that's really great, but being a living organism, we must have openings in the skin. We have to get materials in, we have to get materials out. Again, not, not really an optional activity. And so every one of those openings becomes a potential source of infection. And most of them, in fact, almost all of them, are protected by mucous membranes. Now, the mucous membranes have a couple of different parts to them. The outer layer of it is uh, these cells are, are still alive. They're unlike your skin cells, which are dead. Mucous membrane cells are still living. Packed up tightly, they keep shedding just like the skin cells do. Um, they uh, produce uh, lots of mucus, which is sticky. Uh, microbes get stuck in it and get removed either by swallowing or coughing or blowing your nose or whatever removes them. Uh, and, and so you basically tend to filter out many of the microbes that make an attempt. And it doesn't really matter which part of the, uh, which one of the various openings, they all have mucous membranes. Uh, they also produce chemicals, okay. Uh, this is a, these are some of the locations, this is just the respiratory system where you have mucous membranes. Um, and this gives you just a little bit of the, uh, of uh, summer. Lysozyme is present in some of the mucous membranes as well. Uh, in the trachea and the uterine tubules, you have cilia to keep moving the fluid, the mucus out of the body ultimately. Um, that helps get rid of, of anything that might get trapped. Um, and so basically, this is your first line of defense, okay? Build a big wall, 
put our guards at the gates and hope that you can stop everybody from getting in. Okay? Um, as Ralph saw in Brussels this week, yesterday, this is never 100% effective. Okay? No matter how hard you try, never going to be 100% effective. Okay? It's no better for us with microbes. Never 100% effective. It's very effective, but not 100%. So, the, the result of that is that, uh, I forgot tears, you also have tears, because uh, your eyes are a portable entry, and you are, you are tearing all the time, small amounts. Uh, when you blink, it spreads the, that tear and the tears over the surface. They have lysozyme in them, which helps break down, break down bacteria. So, uh, you've all seen these diagrams from uh, anatomy back over those again. Um, you also have on this uh, on your skin and in your mucous membranes, you have a large number of resident microbes. Um, the normal microbiota, if it's fairly heavy, makes it very hard for new organisms to get established. A, there's not much space. B, they're using up most of the nutrients. Uh, in some cases, their metabolic products are antagonistic to, to, what, to up new bacteria. They're constantly stimulating the second line of your defense, which we'll get to in a moment. And some of them provide vitamins to us. And so the normal microbiota are considered a part of that initial defense. As uh, we mentioned, uh, peptides. Now, so these are, this is just, uh, again, another summary of some of that um, digestive system, urinary system, and how they, they contribute to the process. Reproductive system, cardiovascular. Okay. All right, now, that's your first line of defense. You don't need to memorize all these tables, but uh, I want you to understand, you know, basically, we're looking at barriers in the skin, mucous membranes, As we said, those are never 100% effective. Okay, so, so what do we do when something breaches the wall? Okay, well, we have a, a, a first responder system. Okay, now something gets through. We have a standard response that is the same no matter what the microbe is. It's a genetically determined response. Okay, you're born with it. All animals have this level of innate response. Even even jellyfish have an innate response. Because all animals face the problem of microbes. It's not just us. Um, you know, fish, reptiles, birds, everybody has this kind of defense. Right, now, there are three parts to it that we're going to look at. One is cellular, certain types of cells. That are involved. There are some chemical responses, and then finally, there are there is a process that goes on called the inflammatory process that is a part of the second layer of defense. Right, so, start off with blood. Um, okay, blood plasma has uh, proteins that bind iron. Why do we care about that? Iron is a requirement for metabolism of all organisms. 
if we tie up all the iron so that it's not available, this makes it very difficult for microbes to grow. There's not a lot of extra iron just wandering around. Most of your iron is in use somewhere. Okay? Uh, we also have complement proteins, which we'll talk about. And antibodies are there, but they're really part of the next system. Uh, we have white blood cells. Um, and platelets, but mostly white blood cells. You remember there's granulocytes, agranulocytes. Granulocytes are the ones we're most concerned with here. Agranulocytes will be lymphocytes. They'll be involved in the third level. Now, this is your typical, you, you should, again, there should be a review from anatomy. Uh, stem cells produce red blood cells, platelets, basophils, neutrophils, eosinophils. This is all here, these three are part of your second level of defense. Actually, monocytes are, so these four. And then the lymphocytes are part of the third level. Now, these uh, cells here, these three, are primarily involved with phagocytosis. This one is involved, basophils are involved with inflammation. And they're all part of the second immunity, the second line of defense. And red blood cells have nothing to do with any of the immunity. They just they're just hauling oxygen, that's all they do. Nothing changes for them. All right, so leukocytes. Uh, I'm not concerned that in, in the lecture here that you can identify them, but when they're stained, basophils, acenophils, neutrophils all look different. Um, and last week in lab, you were supposed to try to identify some of them in a blood smear. Uh, you can also identify them with uh, the way the nuclei look. Uh, lymphocytes. Involved in adaptive, and we're, for the most part, not going to talk about those now. Okay, monocytes. Monocytes are large amoeboid like cells that are phagocytes. When they're in the blood, they're called monocytes. When they migrate out of the, the circulatory system and into the tissues, we call them macrophages. It's the same cells. They are uh, antigen presenting cells, which again, we get into in part two. But they're phagocytes, and they're voracious phagocytes. They can uh, phagocytize multiple bacteria, and they don't die from that. They, they can kill the bacteria, they will phagocytize viruses. Uh, they're very, very, very effective. Okay, we also have uh, neutrophils. Neutrophils are by far the largest number of white blood cells. These are, when you have a, a, a new injury, they're usually the first responders of the white blood cells, because there's so many of them. They're usually going to be the first to appear. They are phagocytes. That's all they do. Well, they do secrete chemical messages, but they are phagocytes. Generally speaking, they do not live very long once they start doing that. And they are what form pus in a wound. So pus is a signal. Usually you think of pus, oh, this is bad. This is really bad. But it, it is telling you your immune system is functional. It is doing what it's supposed to do. Pus is an accumulation of dead bacteria and dead white blood cells. They're, they're doing their thing. Okay. Um, we already looked at monocytes, lymphocytes, we can go somewhere else. Um, eosinophils. Eosinophils contain granules, and what they seem to be very common is when you have, they're, they're considered phagocytes, is not really very effective at that, but they are common when you have a parasitic infection. They congregate on, uh, like with worms, they congregate on the outside of the worm's uh, cuticle. They release chemicals. 
uh, they don't seem to always kill them, but they make an attempt at that. And then basophils are filled with granules that contain histamine. And we'll get into their role in inflammatory response. But again, you already know what those cells are. So leukocytes, uh, differential white blood cell counts, you do these in the hospital, it indicates uh, disease uh, situations. Eosinophils indicates allergies and parasitic worms. Uh, get an increase in, in uh, neutrophils, especially with bacterial infections. Uh, viral infections, you'll see mostly an increase in lymphocytes, but because uh, they're mostly recruited by the third part of the adaptive immune system. Okay, so we know what phagocytosis is. Okay, it's, it's like an amoeba swallowing a paramecium, it's the same thing. Okay, uh, and so they engulf the microbe, they put, they, it goes into what's called a phagosome, so basically a little vacuole. This is a uh, lysosome, which has digestive enzymes. It merges with that, the digestive enzymes break down the microbe, and then the pieces are spit out into the waste. This is what phagocytosis is about. Okay, xenophils attack elements, they attach to the surface, they secrete toxins. It's believed they weaken and kill, sometimes kill the helmet. Many people have parasitic worms, and if we have a large infestation of parasitic worms, uh, this is not going to be uh, sufficient. But if you have a, if you do a, a differential white blood count and you have large numbers of xenophils, more often than not, this is a, an indication of some kind of parasitic, particularly helmet uh, We have natural killer cells. Um, these are actually lymphocytes, but they don't work with the rest of the lymphocytes. They work on their own. They're kind of like the Lone Ranger out there. They attempt to kill abnormal cells. With very little is really understood about how they function at this point. Uh, it is known that they are can be effective, not always, but can be effective against cancer cells. Uh, they have to be able to identify it as, in, as if there's something abnormal about the cell. If they can identify there's something abnormal, they will kill it. Now, most cells, if something abnormal is going on, they have a self-destruct system. And the self-destruct system, they're supposed to activate that and they kill themselves when something starts to go wrong. In cancer, that does not happen. And so we need to have some outside help. And natural killer cells are one of the cells that seem to have some not clear just exactly how much. And then there's the neutrophils. I mentioned these are the first to respond. Uh, they destroy the microbes. They produce chemicals. Uh, and they will produce fibers that will trap uh, microbes. In other words, besides killing them, what they're trying to do is prevent them from spreading. Okay? If you're here, we're going to try to keep you right here. Alright, now. So here's the question. I got my barrier. How does this second level know to do anything? Does it know that the walls have been breached? Okay. Got it. Now, got to be some kind of communication and messaging. Well, many of your cells have what are called toll-like receptors. Toll has nothing to do with pain at all. It's something else. Um, and they can detect the presence of pathogens. 
Okay, and here's how they do that. Um, there's also something called a nod protein, but here, here's the important part. This is your host cell, this is one of your cells, and you can see that it has four basic types of receptors. <coughs> one of them can detect the presence of LPS. Remember we said the LPS on the gram negatives was a strong uh, in inducer of, a, of an immune response. They will detect that. If there is LPS in the system, there clearly is a bacterial problem. Okay? They will look for, uh, have receptors for flagellin, which is the unique substance that bacteria use on their flagellum. When there's flagellin present, there are bacteria present. Uh, they can detect peptidoglycan. We all know where that comes from. And then some of them can actually detect specific DNA sequences that are unique to bacteria. Now, what they do whenever they detect any of these is they immediately send chemical messages to other cells to activate other parts of the second level of response. So th these are like the sensors that are behind the wall, on our side of the wall. Something gets through the wall, these are the sensors that will activate and try to get the next part of the innate system to respond. Okay. You think, uh, I don't know if you've ever watched a TV, they have a show called Border Patrol, uh, real life kind of thing. Have you ever seen any of that? I mean, that's, that's first of all, is clearly a never-ending proposition. Okay. But they have sensors in parts on the border that detect people moving by. And, and so that means they need to respond. They cross the river, you know. And, and I can understand why people want to come to the U.S. I mean, that's it's hard not not to understand that. Uh, keeping them out is uh, very difficult because we don't have really a wall. There's not much of one. And there's no wall in Canada. Most of the border in Canada is just open. about the main border service. They, they've been up along the Quebec border. And the only thing that's at the border is there's a, an area maybe uh, 15 yards wide where all the trees are removed so that there's a definite line that marks where the border is. That's it. You know, you get into this country pretty easily. Particularly if you can. Alright, so at any rate, these are your toll-like receptors and their function is to detect one of these four things and notify the rest of these innate immune system that something's happening. And you don't need to go through all of these, um, lots of different ones. I don't, you don't need to memorize any of these. I just want you to see that there's lots of different types of receptors for different things. Um, and so you, you can take a and there's the nod proteins. Uh, these are the ones that are going to trigger inflammation, apoptosis, which we'll talk about, and other innate responses. Okay, so what are these other responses? Okay. Oh, we also have uh, interferons. Interferon is an antiviral uh, chemical that our cells make. Uh, it's never 100% effective, but what it does when a cell is infected with a virus, that cell is doomed. It's either going to die from the virus or it's going to get killed by your adaptive immune system. But there's no way it's ever going to recover. What they do is they secrete chemicals to all the cells around them to tell them they have a viral infection. 
and then those cells will make antiviral compounds, and which will slow down the infection. And those are called interferons. So virus infects the cell. Uh, viral replication occurs. Viral uh, messenger RNA is made. Uh, interferon is made. It diffuses to a, a nearby cells, which I have receptors for it. Uh, and then the infected cell up here dies, releases these, but the cell that received the interferon will have produced chemicals that will interfere with the ability of the virus to infect. Not 100% effective, but they definitely do have an effect. Oh, and it's that time. All right, this is a good place to stop. Um, next time, what we'll talk about is uh, complement uh, and what it does, and then inflammation, and then a fever. And that will be the end of the innate immune system. On Monday, that's right. We'll, we'll do this on next one. Yeah, test on Monday, 5A, 5B, You're going to lag in a few minutes.